Well, please turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 12, verses 49 through 59. Luke chapter 12, verses 49 through 59. We are uh, continuing our consideration of this portion of, of Luke's gospel where Jesus has been teaching. He's been going back and forth between addressing the disciples and then addressing the broader crowds that are surrounding him. And here we see him addressing both of these groups, the disciples as well as the crowds. And here he gives us an unexpected theology of baptism. An understanding of baptism that may seem um, a bit strange and something that you immediately might not think of when you think of this sacrament of baptism. So Luke chapter 12, verses 49 through 59. Uh, please pay careful attention, for this is the word of our God. Our Lord Jesus Christ says, I came to cast fire on the earth, and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on, in one house, there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. He also said to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once a shower is coming, and so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say there will be scorching heat, and it happens. You hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearances of earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? And why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge, and the judge hand you over to the officer, and the officer put you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. Well, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. May he write this word upon our hearts this evening. Well, what is baptism? If you were asked that question on the spot, without any premeditation, what would you say? What is baptism? What comes to mind when you think of baptism. For some of us, it may bring to mind good feelings, feelings of, of celebration, nostalgia. For many Christians today, especially for many evangelical Christians today, baptism is really all about what we do. It's this pledge that we are making to God to follow and serve Christ. Baptism is something we present to God. Now here in this passage, Jesus tells us really the opposite. He says, first and foremost, baptism is something that God does for his people. Baptism is God's action towards his church. It's a means of his grace by which he seeks to serve us and build us up in our faith. Well, as you recently heard, Jesus 
uses this term of baptism in our passage. And he uses it in an unexpected context. We learn that Jesus is the recipient of a baptism, which we will, uh, we will be considering is the crucifixion. So baptism is Jesus' experience on the cross. Then on the same, in the same breath, Jesus talks about a baptism that he administers. He has come to cast fire upon this earth. Moreover, he says that he's come to bring division among families. And thus baptism comes up in a very unexpected context. Judgment, fire, division. Things that we probably wouldn't ordinarily think of when we think of this sacrament of, of baptism. And so this evening, I'd like us to focus our hearts and minds upon this central truth that Jesus is, is teaching us here. That baptism is God's action towards us that in Christ we have been delivered from judgment. It's God's action towards us that in Christ we have been delivered from the judgment and wrath of a holy God. As I mentioned, Jesus begins in verse 50 by referring to this baptism that he will experience at some later point in time. And so in order to further illuminate what Jesus is, is referring to here with this baptism, I'd like us to consider some of the precursors to Jesus' baptism. Some of the precursors to even new covenant baptism that, that you and I have experienced. That is to say, what, what Old Testament baptisms are there? Well, the first Old Testament baptism precursor to this baptism in our text is found in the beginning of Genesis with a common narrative that we all know probably quite well, the flood. In fact, in 1 Peter 3, Peter refers to the flood he refers to Noah and the ark, and then he says directly after this, baptism, which corresponds to this. So Peter is saying that baptism explicitly corresponds to that narrative in Genesis about the flood. Now, as we know, the flood was God's judgment upon humanity for their sinfulness. And God judges, he pours out this water upon humanity, but he, yet he saves Noah, who's referred to as a righteous man. He, he saves Noah and his family through the ark. So Noah and his family are delivered, saved through judgment. And this judgment is a watery judgment. It's a judgment of, of the sea, as it were. In 2 Peter 3, uh, Peter also says that this flood doesn't just, isn't just tied to baptism, but it's also tied to the second coming of Christ. And the greater judgment that will be uh, brought about upon the unbelieving world when Christ returns at the end of history. So the flood is a baptism of sorts. That's what Peter tells us. Listen to what Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. He says, he says this to the Corinthian church, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud 
and in the sea. So there the, the Apostle Paul tells us another precursor to New Covenant baptism is the Exodus, the Red Sea event. Another very common, well-known narrative in our Old Testament. And in that narrative, we, we learn that the Egyptians experienced the baptismal waters of God's judgment in the form of the Red Sea. But yet, the people of God were delivered through that judgment on dry ground. So both of these events, whether it be the flood or, or the Red Sea, they're watery judgments that fall upon the enemies of God, but yet in both events, God provides a means of deliverance, whether it be the ark in Noah's case or the, the dry ground in the case of the Exodus. So baptism, especially in viewed in light of the Old Testament, is all about judgment. In fact, that's what the water symbolizes. Water throughout Scripture, especially in the Old Testament, is, is about chaos. Water is about judgment and wrath. That's how they would have thought about it. So baptism denotes judgment. So now in verse 50, you know, Jesus is saying... Now think, if you had that context in mind, think how you would be hearing these words if you were a first century hearer. Jesus says, I have a baptism to be baptized with. Let's consider in more detail what Jesus actually means by this reference to his baptism, especially in light of these precursors. Well, many commentators uh, believe that Jesus is referring here to his crucifixion. His death on the cross, which he will experience at a later point in time. This makes a lot of sense in light of these Old Testament shadows of, of the flood, of the Red Sea. But furthermore, Paul in Colossians 2 explicitly says that Christ's death on the cross is both a circumcision, meaning it was a form of judgment whereby Christ was cut off from the land of the living, but it also was a baptism where he plunged and took upon himself the water of God's wrath. So this baptism that Jesus is anticipating is Calvary, Good Friday, his death on the cross. Now remember what we heard in our declaration of pardon from Hebrews chapter 9. The author of the Hebrews says that Christ has arrived at the end of the ages to decisively put away sin once and for all. Now, what the author of the Hebrews is saying is that, in a very real sense, final judgment, that is to say, the judgment that the flood and the Red Sea only anticipated in a shadowy form, that final judgment has broken into this age at the cross. So Jesus has taken final judgment, the wrath of God which will be poured out upon all unbelievers at the end of history, Christ has taken that upon himself on the cross for the sake of his people. So in light of the flood narrative, in light of the exodus in the Red Sea, Jesus has truly experienced the flood of God's wrath for you and for me, those who profess faith in Jesus Christ. Christ has been swallowed up in the current of the judgment of the Lord. And 
more, even more remarkable is that Christ, for those of you who, who believe, has become your ark, your dry ground by which you will pass through judgment on the last day. Last week we confessed together how the second coming of Christ is a comfort for us. Now that's striking. A lot of times when we confess in the Apostles' Creed that Christ will come again to judge the living and the dead, that seems terrifying. But the reason why we can say that it's a comfort is because of what Jesus is saying here. He took the baptism of God's wrath. As a consequence, he's become our ark. He's become our dry ground by which we truly will pass through judgment. And so your baptism signifies. It signifies these realities. Now, it doesn't confer these realities. Meaning, we still need the Holy Spirit and faith to work these realities in our hearts. Just, as, just, be, just because someone hears the gospel, the spoken gospel with their ears, doesn't automatically save them. They need the Spirit of God and faith uh, to be worked in their hearts. So too with baptism. We still need the Holy Spirit to work faith in our hearts. For our baptism signify Christ satisfying the wrath of God on your behalf. Your baptism signifies Christ being your ark and your dry ground. It signifies God's action towards you. It's a gift. It's a gift to assure us. Creatures who are weak, who are prone to doubt. In many ways, your baptism is doing the same thing as the declaration of pardon is doing in our order of worship. Our declaration of pardon is, is meant to assure sinners that Christ has achieved the forgiveness of sins for you. Baptism is communicating the same reality just in the form of water. Listen to how John Calvin puts it. He says, Every time we fall again into sin, we must recall the memory of our baptism and through it grow strong in our confidence that our sins are always forgiven us. It's easy for us to remember a baptism, to see a baptism, to to see how water can actually wash away the filth of the body. Sometimes harder for us to uh, be assured of that invisible reality that Christ has cleansed our hearts. And so we are to look to our baptism as a means of assurance that the invisible reality has actually occurred. Uh, one biographer of Martin Luther has, has, has uh, quotes Luther as saying this. He says, the only way to drive away the devil is through faith in Christ by saying, I have been baptized. I am a Christian. For many of our forefathers in, in the faith, our baptism was a, a, a reality of immense practical significance. It's what one looked to in the moments of doubt and temptation and despair, that we belong to the Lord, that Christ has forgiven all of our sins, no matter what our conscience may be saying to us. I also want to make one further comment on, on verse 50. This is sort of a, an, an appendage, but it, it's worth noting, especially in light of the context of chapter 12. Notice that Jesus says, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and then he follows that up by saying, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. 
Now, this word that Luke uses for distress is a very interesting selection. This, this word literally means to cause distress by the force of circumstances. So in one sense, you could think of it as, as, as circumstances gripping our hearts, our emotions, our mind, striking terror upon us. And this same word is used a few chapters earlier in in Luke chapter 8. You may recall this narrative. This is the narrative where Jesus casts out a demoniac in the the region of the Gerasenes. And it's a Gentile region. And Jesus casts out this this demon into a herd of pigs. And these Gentiles, these pagan Gentiles, witness this miracle. And they're they're terrified. And in in chapter 8, verse 37, Luke says that the people were seized with great fear. Now, this isn't the fear of the Lord. This is terror because they recognize they're in the presence of someone much more powerful than they. And Luke uses the same word. They were seized. That is to say this this power gripped them with great terror. But the same word is also used in a positive sense by Paul in 2 Corinthians 5. When when Paul says, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 14, the love of Christ controls us. Meaning, he says the love of Christ grips his heart, his soul, and his mind. This shows us that Christ experienced distress. He experienced anxiety. And yes, we, we don't know exactly what that would have looked like. He was someone who tasted nothing of Adam's original sin. He was perfect from the inside out. But yet he still lived in a fallen world under a common curse and he experienced distress. Difficult circumstances that gripped, that gripped his soul. Think of the Luke twenty two fourteen, and when Jesus is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane and, and we read that he is in agony as he's praying before his father, anticipating this baptism which he's about to experience in sweating drops of blood. So this illuminates even what we considered uh, a couple weeks ago when Jesus says, do not be anxious. He's not just simply saying that you better not experience any anxiety in this age. He himself experienced distress and at least some level of anxiety. His point, as we uh, talked about then, is uh, the priorities of our heart. Is the kingdom of God, is the fear of God that which is on, on, on top of your heart, the ultimate priority. And when it is, it doesn't mean these anxieties will go away, but they'll be put in their proper, their proper context. But furthermore, this illuminates what, what the author of the Hebrews says in chapter, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. It says, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize us, sympathize with us in our weakness but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. So when you experience the distress of the soul, circumstances that seem to grip your heart, you can remember that you have a great high priest right now who's seated at the right hand of God, who is able to sympathize with you better than anybody else because he himself experienced the distress of the soul. It's encouraging Encouraging and wonderful truth to think upon. When verse 49, Jesus gives us another mission statement, he says that 
I came to cast fire on the earth and would that it were already kindled. So Jesus says he's come to this earth to undergo a baptism, which is the cross. But here he says he's come to cast fire on the earth. Remember John's words, John the Baptist, as he he prophesied about the ministry of Jesus Christ. In Luke chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, John says this. He says, Jesus will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And goes on to say, his winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor and gather the wheat into his barn, the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So here, both in this text and in Luke chapter 12, Jesus is alluding to another baptism of his. But this baptism is not one in which he will receive, but it's one in which he will administer. And this baptism is is referring to Pentecost, when Jesus will baptize, flood this earth with the Holy Spirit and fire. In fact, that's how Pentecost is described. In Acts chapter 2, we read that when the day of Pentecost arrived and the Spirit uh, was poured out upon the people of God, it's described as divided tongues as of fire. Meaning the coming of the Spirit is cast in the language of fire. So the fire and the spirit, the fire and the presence of God are are linked throughout Scripture. And so for believers, the Holy Spirit is a means of our uh, purification. But for unbelievers, the Spirit of God is the means of their future judgment, which will occur at the second coming of Christ. That's what Peter says in 2 Peter 3 when he compares the flood narrative and the second coming of Christ. The world that then was, was was destroyed with water, but now the heavens and the earth are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. So this baptism of the Spirit that Jesus will administer will be a means of judgment on the last day. In fact, for those who've been baptized but reject Christ, your baptism signifies that judgment, that future baptism that you will receive, the wrath of God by by fire and the Spirit. So our baptisms, the baptisms that you have experienced, signify these realities. It points to the the cross. It points to Pentecost. It points to these wonderful acts of redemption that God has worked on your behalf. That's what baptism is about. It's a means of assurance that your sins really are forgiven. The Spirit of God really was poured out into your heart. Well, the rest of this passage, Jesus goes on to... um, to tell us about some of the implications of Jesus' baptisms. The implications. And he has, he, refer, he speaks to both the disciples as well as the rest of the crowd. So here he begins with the disciples. And he says that his baptism will create division. 
one sense, we can say the waters of baptism are thicker than the blood of natural kin. Our baptisms signify this union with Christ. And union with Christ, all these benefits, the forgiveness of sins, and, and, and much more that we have, have in Christ. Our baptisms signify that. And that's our most fundamental identity in this life. But we, as we all know, have many other identities. Our vocation, our last name, that is to say our natural family. Uh, we, our citizenship, our earthly citizenship, our political allegiances, the list could go on and on. We have many, many identities in this age. And Jesus is saying that when our baptism comes into tension with these other identities, his baptism, the kingdom of God and our baptism, as it were, takes precedence. And here he's speaking to the, the idea of our natural family. Oftentimes, and this is our hope and prayer, that there isn't tension between our identity as members of a natural family and our identity in the kingdom of God. Lord willing, these will sweetly comply. But that isn't always how it works in this fallen, this fallen world. Sometimes there's tension where we have to pick between relationships among a natural family and the kingdom of God. And here Jesus is saying that the kingdom of God, belonging to him, takes precedence over every other identity that we have in this age. Essentially what Jesus is saying to his disciples, count the cost of belonging to me, of being baptized into my body. Count the cost. It may divide households. Well, Jesus now turns to the crowds. And he, he says to the crowds, he says, you all know how to predict the weather patterns in Palestine. You know when the, the showers are coming. You know when the winds are coming off the desert, um, bringing scorching heat. You know these things. How can you not interpret the signs of my coming? It's a rebuke. And then he goes on in the next passage and he tells a parable of sorts about settling one's debts and how one should be urgent and careful to make sure that their debts are paid lest they, they end up in, 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 in prison. And here I think we can interpret this theologically as having ultimate significance to our debt before God. How we all must be careful that our debts are settled before it's too late. So here he's turning to the crowds and he's saying, count the cost of rejecting me. Count the cost of not belonging to me. For if one does not belong to Christ, if one rejects Christ, as I mentioned earlier, there's a baptism of judgment that awaits them on the last day. They have no ark. They have no dry ground. They have the spirit of judgment and fire. But for those of you, for those of us who belong to Christ, who profess faith in this Jesus Christ, you await a glorious reality on the last day. Listen to how the Apostle John puts it in Revelation 21. John says this, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea is no more. What John is saying is that for those of you who are in Christ, there is no sea in your future. 
Christ has satisfied the waters of God's judgment on your behalf. And that's good news. Let us pray.